Okay, if you would, please turn to the epistle of 1 John. The epistle of 1 John in the back of your Bibles. I will be reading chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All Christians everywhere are called by Jesus to sit before this passage and to look into the mirror of their lives. To look into the mirror of their desires, the mirror of their decisions and their priorities, and to examine whether they are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, may we have all in here eyes to see in the mirror of Your Word and to be saved by it. To be changed by it. To be awakened by it. And so I beg that You help me be honest with this text. I I ask that you help me say what it says and not what it doesn't say. And that you don't leave us there. But you work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. To the glory of your holy name and to the eternal joy of our souls. Amen. This text before us, verses 15 through 17, is not difficult to unravel. It's fairly simple and clear. There is one command. Do this, and the rest are the reasons to do it. The argument to do it. The one command is there at the beginning of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's it. Your application at the end of the sermon is go, obey that. The rest of this passage then is the argument for why I shouldn't love the world or the things of the world. 
And with that argument, Paul in effect is saying, do you need gasoline in the tank of your life to go on out into your daily life and not love the world? And so he says, here it is. Here's the gasoline. Verse 15b to the end of 17. This means that each of us is meant to leave here today. We're meant to go off into our week and ask ourselves, why should I not follow the desires of my flesh? Why should I not love the world and follow the pride of human arrogance and superiority over others? And so I say to you, believer, This week, as you, not if you, as you are being tempted to love the world, hear this command ring in your head. Don't. Do not love the world. But don't stop Don't just, okay, guess that's what I'm supposed to not do. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. But go on to ask yourself, why? Why should I not follow this desire of my flesh or the desire of my eyes? Why? And then don't come up with answers Just let this text answer that question for you. So let's go to it. Starting with verse 15. One command, don't love the world. And the first argument is the second part of verse 15. Let's read the whole verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, here's the first argument. Why? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see it? In other words, the reason you shouldn't love the world is that you can't love the world and love God at the same time and in the same way. Love for the world replaces love for God. And vice versa. Now the question is, what does he mean by love here? I mean, it's the Greek word agape, but people think, oh, that tells you everything. It doesn't tell you anything. Context tells you it. So first, don't love, and he gives you the object. The world, the cosmos. Don't love the world, the culture, everything in this, this present mortal life. Don't love it, meaning don't be looking to it to fill your hole in your heart. Your vacuum for true satisfaction and happiness. That's what he means. Don't, he doesn't mean don't love the world by being helpful to the world and 
feeding it when it's hungry. It's not what he means. It doesn't mean that kind of love. He means love when you looked at something. And said, That's good. I love it. It's my favorite food. I love air. Oh, if you can't breathe, you're going to really start to love air. I need air. Okay. Don't love the world. And therefore, when he says, why? Because if you are, then the love of God is not in you. Now, that phrase, love of God, does not mean there God's love for us. It means our love for God. Looking to Him as our air to breathe. So, if one loves the world, according to John, which he's going to show us, the world, these things are not of God, the world that he's talking about, he's going to define it. He means the world which is against God. And you love it, then by definition you can't be loving God. If you love, if you worship that which is against the God you say you love. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the world, its stuff. Money, possessions, things. Yeah, I, I, I do. I want you to turn over to, to the Gospel of John for a moment. I want you to see something. Chapter 5, Gospel of John, chapter 5. Starting with verse 42. Jesus says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Okay, there again, he means, I know you do not love God. How do you know Jesus? It goes on. Because I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. In verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Jesus says, because you have no appetite for the glory of God, but your appetite is for the world, for being praised, for having things and seeking the glory that is in this mortal life. Because of that, I know that you do not have love for God in you. That's his first argument. Do not love the world or the things in the world because if you do, those who are loving the world do not have the love of God in them. Then in verse 16, look at it. It comes the explanation 
of that first argument. It's not a second reason not to love the world. His first reason to not love the world is because anyone who loves the world does not have the love of God in them. And now he says, let me tell you what I mean by that. He's going to explain that. Verse 16. See the word for? Okay, That's what he's explaining. For, in other words, again, the reason love for the world replaces love for God is because all that is in the world, defined as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's why those who are loving the world are not loving God. The reason the love of the world excludes love for God is that the desires of the flesh and of the eyes and of the arrogance of humanity, that's not from God. That's his argument. It's, it's like Jesus' brother later said in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 4 of James. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's against God. And so John is saying, as he has been saying in this letter, it's just religious mumbo-jumbo without any substance to say that you love God while your life is a life of loving the world. That's John's first reason. Don't love the world or the things in the world. And then he adds two more reasons. The first is the beginning of verse 17. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because the world is passing away along with its desires. So don't do it. That's his argument. No one runs into a burning house and plops down on the couch and flips the TV on and gets some snacks and starts watching football games or movies to entertain themselves. Why don't we do that? Because we know that house is passing away quickly and we don't want our desire for entertainment in that house to pass away with it. No one does that. The house isn't going to last. That's his argument. The world is passing away, which John means the world is on fire. It's doomed. At the return of Christ, all that is not of Christ will be destroyed. Just jump down to verse 28 for a second in chapter 2. John says, And now little children remain in Him. Why? So that when He, Jesus, appears, when He returns in His second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink in shame at His coming. That's why. 
And therefore, to set your heart on the godless world, he just says, because the world, as he's defining it here, is that's not of God. It's against God. To set your heart on that godless world, to, to, live, to live for the world and those things in it, is only asking for future disappointment. Misery in the end. It's perishing. And, and, and that's not all. Not only is the world passing away, but John says what? Also, the driving desires for the world are passing away. People who are living according to their desires of the flesh, that's their pathway. He's saying that desire for worldliness itself will pass away. If you love the world, It'll pass away, and it'll take you with it. This third reason to not love the world is the last part of verse 17. But, but, whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a reason. He, he, he's got to mean in the context, doesn't he? Doing the will of God is the opposite of loving the world. Whoever does the will of God. Remember, this is John, very close friends with Jesus in his mortal Life. Isn't he taking these words right from Jesus' mouth? As John records them in John 14, verse 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Loving Jesus is inseparable from doing the will of God. The love for the Father, that, that's something, it's in a person, it's at the core. Where it's initiated, you can't see it. But in that person, it makes itself shown. It does evidence itself by doing the will of God. And so, in our passage, loving the Father as opposed to the world, there in verse 15, the love of God, and then in verse 17, doing the will of God, those are intricately tied together in the Apostle John's mind. You can't have one without the other. Okay, now that's what you have to judge. You have a text in front of you. You should always do this with any pastor, any teacher, any preacher. 
Is what he says, he sees in the text, what it says. And if John were to walk in here this morning, you'd want to, oh, it'd be so awesome. Okay, did you get that one right? Is that what you mean? Okay. And I think John would say, or I think it would say, of course I think it would say, I wouldn't be saying it. Obviously it's clear. Or he would say, let me just say to you what I already said back in verse 4 of chapter 2. Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep His commandments, the person is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's saying, if you live a life, if your pathway in your life is going in the direction of loving, the world, you will perish with the world. But if you're going the other way, if you who have in your flesh desires for the world all the time, we're going to see that's, that's in Christians. But if you in this battle are going the other way in loving the Father through Jesus Christ, then as he says at the end of verse 17, you have true life. You will abide. You will remain. You will live forever with Him. That's our passage. Now the rest of the time is to just be patient and slow and let the passage hit us. Let this passage solidify our theology, our thinking about what is saving faith anyway? What is it not? I mean, I got a question. I mean, I wonder how you would answer it. I don't know what the numbers are, just within America right now, of how many professing this you know, kind of ambiguous term called evangelicalism. But I don't know if the number is 30 million or 40 million or what, but many of us are in church today in the world of evangelicalism. How many of those people, what percentage of those people do you think in any way are, are concerned with the question about the relationship between faith in Christ in love for Christ. How many are concerned with the question, can you believe in Christ? Can you believe in Jesus, the Gospel, and not love Him? John says you can't. You cannot savingly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if you have no love for Him, for the Father. Why? Because this text before us is about loving God versus loving the world. And the result in the text is whether you perish with the world or 
You abide with Him forever. How do you put that together? Let me, here's the question that ought to, if you're a good Bible reader, which ought to know your New Testament if you've been around for longer than a year, but in Jesus. But is John saying anything different than the Apostle Paul? Isn't it true that this salvation is so great? We are so undeserving. What we deserve is God's eternal judgment against us. And that He sent His Son, and thus He saves us by grace alone, through Christ's work alone. Who are saved? Oh, through the means of faith in Him alone. Apart from adding other stuff to that. That's what Paul teaches. Absolutely. And John doesn't disagree with it at all. John is not saying, oh, by the way, it's good that you believe in Jesus now. Now go to work and start adding something else to that faith called loving God. It's not what he's doing. John believes the gospel. That the way a person is saved by it when they hear what Jesus did is they come to faith. This is exactly what he says at the end of the letter in chapter 5 verse 13. This is why he's writing it. I write to the you these things. I write to you who believe. There it is. You believe in the name of the Son of God. Why do I do it? So that you may know that you have eternal life. All believers have eternal life. Yes, John says, yes. Eternal life, eternal salvation depends on believing in Christ. The issue John raises, the issue that the evangelical church world needs to wake up and ask the question is this. What is that? Believing. That's the question. There's all kinds of faith. There's all kinds of belief and mental assent. James says the demons believe. They're not saved by it. They shudder. One of the main jobs as a preaching pastor is to help you see. To help you see the Scripture. What's there? To, to help you let John have his say without filtering it. To, to help you let John speak for himself by helping you put away the filters that may be embedded in you through evangelicalism that cause us not to hear. What is plainly said. Let's let John and thus the Holy Spirit speak. He is simply saying that saving faith and love, looking to God as I, I want Him, I enjoy Him, He is my answer. 
I adore that. He tastes good. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He is simply saying that faith and that love for God are the one way to eternal salvation. They are inseparable, as he says at the end. But one who does the will of God, that means loving God and not loving the world, that one abides forever. See, when the Apostle John writes, and again, we're talking about John, the son of Zebedee, at the Last Supper, sitting right by Jesus or reclining, lying and with his head on Jesus. This John, when he writes, he has no trouble theologically whatsoever of exchanging faith in the Gospel. Faith in Jesus with love for God as the one way of salvation. Flip over to chapter 5. For a moment, first John. Starting with verse three, John writes, "For this is the love of God." Okay, so we should get our ears perked up for a second. Okay, okay, John. Okay, you define your terms for us. Thanks. This is the love of God. By love of God, he means this is what it means to love. God. Okay, what is it, John? That we keep His commandments. But He's not done. Oh, okay. Darn, i got to do what He says to do. I can't live after my sexual nature in any old way I can't want. I can't deal with my money any old way that I want. I can't deal with human beings and how I speak to them. Any old way I want. I can't ignore those who are in pain. Any old, but God's got commands. Okay, I guess I've got to do them. John did not say that's the love of God. It's not. He's not done. He says the true love of God is that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Why? For He he explains. Something happened in, in, in you, believer. That's what he said. Something happened to you. You weren't born with this. You were born again with this. What happened? For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. I'm convinced John means, but take our text. When you're born of God, something snapped. You used to worship the creature rather than the creator. You looked at the world and made it your God, your ultimate objects of satisfaction. And then you were born of God and you've overcome that loving of the world. John is saying there's something that happens in new birth that causes the human heart to come alive and to see and to thus love Him. And because of that, 
when he speaks, his commandments are no longer a bummer to you or a burden to you. Oh, trust me, they're against desires in you, in your flesh. But at the core of your being, oh God, command what you will and grant that I follow you. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome because everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Okay, now here's the kicker. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Okay, don't look at your Bible, don't look at the Word. He could say this, because it it's an exact flow of His meaning. This is the victory that has overcome the world, your love of the world. Loving God. Isn't that what He means? Because He's defining, this is the love of God. That's what He's been doing. And so this is the victory that has overcome the world. But He says, okay, let's just use the other term. Our faith. That's true saving faith. Which by definition is loving God. Faith in Jesus overcomes our deadness and enmity towards God that we're all born with. And said, I'm in love the world and the creature rather than the Creator. And then faith came alive. And it flipped that around. And thus His commandments are no longer, I can't stand that God tells me what to do. They're no longer burdensome. So love for God, otherwise known as in this text of chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Love for God, known as faith. That's what leads to eternal life. And this is what John is arguing throughout this letter. Because that is the Christian life. Remember how he started the letter? That's what it is to walk in the light and not in the darkness. That's what it is, John's words, what it is to be having fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we're clear. Yes, absolutely it's true. Jailer, ready to kill himself? Paul, Silas, don't do it. What must I do to be saved? Answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Absolutely, John doesn't disagree with it. But if your idea of what it means to believe in Jesus, of what it means to have faith in Jesus is, I agree that I don't want to go to hell. What do I do? Well, do A, B, and C. Okay, I did those. Am I okay? You're okay. You're saved now. If your idea of faith is, or of believing in Jesus is, yes, I said the prayer, I did this thing, and I have positive affirmations concerning Jesus, and I don't want to go to to hell, but, but I don't love Him more than all, then that idea of saving faith is utterly wrong. It's not the faith of the Bible. 
I want you to listen, just, just listen for a moment to a couple of texts. You don't have to turn, just hear them. Just short. And to hear how the New Testament speaks. Very familiar verse, Romans 8, 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those... Hmm, for who? Hmm. Christians, right? Believers. All things work together for good, right? Absolutely. It's exactly what Paul's saying. Except, he just used these words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's not just John. And it's clearly Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul writes, Oh, the things that God has in store for us at the second coming in Christ. Okay, there's the content. What God has prepared for whom? For those who are in Christ, right? Absolutely. For those who have faith in Jesus, right? Absolutely. Except He chose to say it this way. What God has prepared for those who love Him. At the end of his long letter to the Corinthians, his first one, Paul closes it out this way. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, can you imagine? Paul says, oh yeah, I know there's Christians that don't really love Jesus much. Let them be damned. You think Paul would say that? Absolutely not. Because faith, Saving faith by the Spirit in a person has created a love for the Lord. Or James, chapter 2, verse 5, he writes, To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to whom? To those who love. Of John speaks to us who love him. Okay, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't do, because if that's you, if that's how you live in your life, loving the world and the things in the world, you live for those, well, then it's showing that you don't love him. And you don't want that. You see, now having said that, I'm going to. How do I do this? Because our love for God is really high sometimes as Christians, and it's really low at other times, right? And what's going on here? See, I think if if there are a way we could magically put ears on thirty million evangelical Christians this morning to listen to the text that I just read, or, or, or everything I've said in this sermon. So far. And they couldn't help it. They could not resist actually hearing the meaning, what's being said. I think many of them would internally contemplate, wait a minute, I don't know if I love God like that. I don't know if God's my treasure. I can think of all kinds of other things that are really my treasure and they drive me. But God, He's not in that category. 
actually, I'm pretty bored with the Bible on a fairly regular basis. And even though that these magic ears are on my head and I'm, I'm forced to have to listen to an exposition of Scripture that goes on for 57 minutes, I'll tell you the truth, I can't follow more than four minutes. I'm bored. In my lifestyle, I know that I don't live according to some of those old-fashioned commandments, but we live in a new age, a new culture, right? We all adapt. I know I'm making my choices, but I believe in Jesus. I just don't buy this stuff that's being said, that loving God and not the world is necessary. For salvation. No, okay. Why is it that, if I'm correct, many will have those internal thoughts over what's being said? Here's the one, here's one reason why that would be, because many of those people have never been born again. Of all ages, and more sadly, in the way we do evangelical church life, many of those teenagers young adults who are raised in church have never come to Christ. It's hard to reach them because of things we've told them. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm raised in a Christian family. I love Jesus all my life. I said a prayer at the youth rally. And for those, I'd want to say that you assume even in this church, maybe, you might assume you're a Christian and that you're going to heaven. This passage of Scripture this morning, oh, if I could put magic ears on you, it's meant to shake you up and to save your soul by bringing you to repentance. Repentance that is the faith and the trust that produces love, adoration, clinging, yearning for God and His holy truth. The Bible. And that's why the world outside of the church, that's why the world is so desperate to have churches. And it's why the church is so desperate to have churches where we can and week out, there is exposition of the Holy Scripture that is able to save your souls. And it is able to put before you something so far superior and delightful and tasty than all that the world offers. Now, there are other kinds of us sitting in churches hear it oh my gosh and let me just say it is possible that many have tasted and have seen that Jesus is really good because they have been born again but they have become calloused they have become hardened they have let their heart become distracted by the world and thus move them away from the joy that is 
Jesus. Or as the Hebrew writer says, they have become dull of hearing. The answer is the same answer to the unbeliever. It's the same old truth if you've grown cold. Flee to the truth. Flee to God's holy word. Eat and eat and partake of expositional preaching week in and week out in the local church. Partake of genuine, no games played Christian fellowship and prayer and let the match light your heart on fire to love and adore and worship Him so that what you were eating last week of the world tastes like dirt. In other words, obey 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 2 to 3. Obey it. Here it comes. Like newborn babies. Okay, picture a two month old nursing baby. Hasn't eaten in three and a half hours. That's desperate. And Peter wants us to see the desperate. And he says, Okay, you, Christian, like that newborn baby, you long. Desire, be desperate for the pure spiritual milk in the context is the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed, if it is true that you have tasted that the Lord is good, go after him. The gospel is the answer for those who are professing Christians, but they don't know the Lord and never have. The Gospel is their answer. And it's the answer for the true believer who has grown cold. Let the admonition of our passage this morning stir up your love, your delight in, your joy in, your yearning for God Himself. Now, are you still there in chapter 2, First John? According to verse 15, for us Christians in this battle, in this walk of red-hot hearts for Jesus, and then it goes colder, what's going on? Yet, yeah, Welcome to the true Christian life. Notice that to the extent our love for God cools down, I think the principle here is clearly this. That is the extent that our love for the world has begun to take over our desires. And to choke out our affection and love for God. The love of the Father for the Father and the love for the world cannot coexist at the same time and in the same way. Now here's the reality of the way God made us. We are desire factories. Every human being is yearning for something. And there's the world and the things in the world. And there's God presented to us in the Gospel constantly through Jesus Christ. 
in the godless world out there is like on the back table, there's a bunch of Winchell donuts. Go live on that for three months. Or if I prepare you a steak and really delicious vegetables this afternoon, but you eat a whole box of donuts on the way over, you will come over and say, I'm not hungry. The world is the emptiness of donuts. And God constantly in the life of the church is presenting steak and vegetables. But as we fill our souls with the donuts of the world, no wonder we say, I'm not hungry. That's why so many people in so many churches throughout this world are fortunate to go to churches and hear faithful exposition of biblical text and they are bored out of their minds. And they think it's the expounding of the text that's the problem. The steak was not cooked right. I'm not hungry. It's not why you're not hungry. You eat the donuts of the world. They don't know why they have an attention span of a fly. It's because they're full with donuts. And they go away Week in, week out, unmoved, untouched, and unnourished. When we try to satisfy our yearnings and our hunger with the donuts of the world, then we will not be able to eat or have an appetite for the true food of heaven. Notice in verse 16, John describes now, the world. Okay, what is this? What are these donuts that are constantly shoved in front of us? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So first, he says, the desires of the flesh. By flesh there, what he means is our, even true believers, our natural, inborn, sinful disposition to eat donuts. That's it. It is our temporal pleasures that yearn against God are still in every genuine believer. That's why Paul talks about the Holy Spirit indwells you and there's a battle, there's a war. Your flesh makes war against what the Spirit's doing in you. And there's a battle. So that's what he means by the world. He means your desires that are against God and how you're acting yourself out in this world. In the world around us, the world in which we live, as Paul calls it, the present evil age, it's like a magnet to our 
flesh. The desires of the flesh. Or then he's, the desires of the eyes. He's, he's referring to the things that we see in the world and thus we feel strongly. Gotta have that. If I get that, I will really be happy. That's what he's talking about. And that's so fundamental. That is the essence of the sin that plunged every one of us into the sin nature. In Genesis, Eve saw that one tree. God says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Don't eat. And she saw it was good for food. And the text says, and it was delightful to the eye. David saw. He knew where to find Bathsheba bathing. Saul her. And he calls it the pride of life. The heck is that? The pride of life there is the word bios. It's where we get our word eventually, biology. You know, often in New Testament about your life and the life you're living and your life, it's usually the word suke. Here he uses bias. What is he talking about? He, he doesn't mean loving the world. In other words, it's the pride of being alive. That's not what he's saying. What he means by the pride of life is that the things in the world that make life possible... They're dangerous. Pride in it. This is what I want you to see this. Why I say it. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. John will go on to write, If anyone has the world's goods, okay, stuff, money, houses, cars, horses, whatever, okay, bank accounts, if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in you. Okay. That word goods, it's the exact same word, bios. Life. It's just how they expressed it. You got, you got life's stuff. Okay. So here he says, to love the world. Oh, here's the danger. The pride of having stuff. Having prestige. Having rank. Having conceit. All the things of this mortal life. Dangerous. So his point is this. Anything in this world that is not God can be dangerous to our souls. And we are desire factories. And God made us that way. Every natural desire we have can be dangerous. Like the desire for food. Like the desire for sex. Like the desire for shelter. Like the desire for a better car that doesn't break down all the time. They didn't say they are. I said they can be dangerous. All of the stuff in the world 
has the potential to rob your heart from the love of God. Anything that is not God can draw our hearts away from loving God. If God's given you a wonderful wife, she could be dangerous if you let her become your ultimate delight. If He's given you a wonderful husband or children or a job or education, and you say, well, I don't have any of that, so I have no worry. Oh, you're in big danger. Because your desire and your envy and your jealousy for not having what you would like to have and you see other people will, will be your desire above God. Everything is a landmine. So let me, as I'm closing, and here's the question. Does this mean that we are to have no desires? For anything, in any way, outside of desiring our joy in God. Absolutely not. It does not mean that. God didn't make us that way. Does this mean we're not supposed to desire? I want to go to that restaurant, that one, because I have a desire for that food right now. Does it mean we shouldn't desire that? Does it mean if we're unmarried, we shouldn't desire a spouse? If we are married, we shouldn't desire that we have a spouse and that we love our spouse? Does it mean that we shouldn't desire children or health or a job or a good movie or marital sex? No, it doesn't mean that. But know that all of those things can be dangerous to the soul. You can't not desire. Buddhism and the philosophy of Buddhism is just so dumb to get to the place where I am a no more desires. Oh, do you desire to have no more desires? It's over. You're not we're not made that way. We hunger, we thirst for not just food and not just water, but for, for many things that God even gives. So you don't want to go where some early Christians went. Let's just get rid of all desire. Even Paul had to deal with it. Oh, married life? Wonderful. Sexual union in marriage? Oh, that's kind of unholy. Paul said, no, it's not. All things are to be received with thanksgiving believer and enjoy them. But now they're in their place. And that's the simple key. The Christian life is not denying desire. It is desiring God above all the other desires and seeing all the other desires as what they are. Creations and gifts from God that are to be received with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. And that walk is what turns all those desires to the giver. In them. In the delighting in them. In the eating of the food. And cuddling with your spouse or your children. It is that that worships God as the giver of this, my ultimate 
joy. So, we're called to desire God's creation in God's way. For God's glory. So do you see the joy that there is in having children? In loving your children? Do you see that as an opportunity to glorify God? Then worship God and enjoy them all the more. Are you thankful for that wonderful date out in a nice restaurant with really good food and you desire it, desire it to the glory of God. Are you thankful for your marriage covenant? Then enjoy marital relations to the glory of God. Knowing the Scripture, this points to Christ in the church. You desire education. Then desire it. Pursue it. But not as God. To the glory of God. You got the picture? You can fill it in for another thousand things. So as I close, St. Augustine concisely put all of this this way 1,600 years ago. He loves you too little who loves anything together with you which He loves not for your sake. Let that be your pursuit of loving God in all of these other wonderful gifts He gives you. And so I close by saying to you, Sovereign Grace Fellowship, do not love the world or the things in the world because then it would show the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, your sinful desires of the flesh and sinful desires of the eyes and the boastful arrogance of stuff and things in the world is not from God. But that approach is from the world, which is against God. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, will abide forever in Him. Let's pray. Father, may You take that which has been accurate concerning this passage and apply it in ways that I cannot imagine in differing lives. Would you take this in the intimate way in which you love us? For it is true. We do love you because you have first loved us. And as a wonderful, caring, omniscient, and omnipotent Father, we can trust our lives, the ebbs and the flow of them into your hands. So take 
in that most wonderful, personal, gentle way by your Spirit, the truth of this passage, and intimately cause each and every soul here to be caught up into loving you more and deeper in those particular ways that you are pointing out to the glory of your holy name. Amen.